Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast, as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at tprdfw.com. Well, this is our 150 chapters on the end times, and we're going to be doing 1 Thessalonians uh, 4 and 5 tonight, and uh, the, the, um, the content that we're going to be looking at uh, is um, primarily, if you kind of just want kind of like a little a phrase between these, uh, these two chapters, the portion of Scripture that we're going to be looking at is living diligently in light of the second coming, in light of his return, it's living diligently in light of that. And now just uh, as I'm you know, going through this series and we're looking at these verses, uh, these chapters, these end time chapters, one at a time, you know, I have never given this much attention uh, and gone this slow through it. It's been rich for me. Uh, just a verse-by-verse verse look through the New Testament end times passages. Um, it's just been really rich. And, uh, you know, I've for sure read it all before, um, but never, you know, done this line-upon-line line, um, investigation. So it's, uh, it's been really rich. There's a lot of details there that are jumping out. And part of the reason I even share that with you is... Um, you would find the same thing if you did it yourself. Uh, you would find so many passages coming alive and so many details um, that you, you're already aware of related to New Testament theology that jump out to you as you give this kind of a focused look on these 150 chapters. So what I'm going to do as, a, as we've been doing is I'm going to read this through the passage of Scripture that we're going to cover, passages, and then we'll break down uh, a lot of the phrases uh, of the verses. So... Here we are in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 14 through 18, and then also in uh, 5. Um, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, We tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, brothers and sisters, about the times and dates, we do not need to write you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying, peace and safety. Destruction will come on them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another 
and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so we're going to kind of connect these dots into a few themes here. Um, Starting uh, here in uh, Roman numeral 2, bottom of page 1, really top of page 2. If you guys can recall, in uh, some previous sessions recently, we did... Um, the letters to the Corinthians, and we saw where Paul taught extensively about the resurrection to the Corinthians. Well, here he's now talking to a different church, and it's one of the things that's just kind of helpful uh, detail to remember, that when the Bible was written, and specifically the New Testament epistles, they were written to different churches, and I don't think that Paul or Peter or John were thinking, you know what, this is going to be the Bible in a minute. I don't think that they were thinking these letters are going to wind up being drafted together and form what will be called the New Testament for the next 2,000 years. I don't don't think that was in their mind. They were thinking, we're apostles. We've got the word of the Lord. We need to help these churches. Let's give them the instruction that they need. So it makes sense that when they would write to one congregation, that there would be a significant amount of overlap when they write to another congregation because likely... Both of those congregations, those churches, churches in those two cities, would have similar needs, but then also have some specific needs. And that's why there is so much differentiation, because Paul wouldn't just write a letter to save people, he'd write a letter to the Corinthians, and then he'd write a letter to the Thessalonians. And, and so, uh, but there would then be overlap as well as unique uh, content. So here we have some overlap. Paul wrote a lot to the Corinthians about the, uh, the um, resurrection. And here he's now writing a good bit as well to the Thessalonians. There is, uh, however, a few things that are pretty different about the context of these two congregations. So first, um, this is a subject we've covered kind of before in other settings, but I just want us to, to look at it again. One of the things that's interesting about the, the church of Thessalonica is Paul was only there for three weeks. And the reason that that part matters is Paul references a number of things in his letters because he wrote two letters to the Thessalonians, first and second. He references a number of things in those letters that he's like, you guys remember what I taught you when I was with you? You remember the kinds of stuff we talked about? But he was only there for 21 days. He was there for three weeks. So the reason that that part matters is he taught them a ton about the end times but he was only there three weeks. That's just a a good perspective point of like how the New Testament uh, apostles viewed the importance of eschatology in the life of a new believer. Think about how different that is from how we treat the life of a new believer now in 2024. Like somebody gives their life to the Lord, the last thing we think they need to hear about in the first three weeks of their salvation is about end times. And yet, that's exactly what was on the menu during Paul's brief three weeks. I mean, he's the apostle Paul. He's got three weeks with him. And not only that, he references it like it wasn't a fleeting conversation that happened to happen at lunch one day. He references it like, I taught you about this stuff with enough clarity that I'm referencing back to it, and you should remember because we spent enough time on it. And not just surface stuff. I mean, he gave some significant eschatological points to uh, the church of Thessalonica. So 
Anyway, I just gave you here the verse where it says he was only with them for three Sabbaths and he reasoned with them and then a mob rode up, rose up and they had to get out of town real fast. So, uh, so that's the passage there in Acts uh, 17, 1 through 10 is Paul is in Thessalonica for three weeks. All right, well, look at this. Here we've got 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 2, uh, middle of page 2. Um, let's see. Uh, now, brothers and sisters, about the times and dates... We do not need to write you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come, blah, blah, blah. He's saying, he, he's making reference, you know, I know that you know about the details of the timing of the rapture and about the details of, uh, of how this all works because I gave you instruction when I was with you. And yet, while he had given them instruction as is the role of the epistles, is to come alongside and add information. Uh, a lot of times it's, it's uh, landing on the, the foundation of what was already taught and then building upon that a little bit. And so Paul then says this statement to a group of people that he says, I know you don't need instruction about this because you already understand it, but I do want to add a little bit to your understanding. He says, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. So what, what this tells me is that uh, there is at least some gaps in their theological training related to the resurrection, okay? Because he says the way that he wrote the Corinthians is, uh, you know, he gave them a ton of information, the way he's writing uh, the Thessalonians here is he's like, listen, I'm going to lean on what you've already got, but I don't want you to be uninformed about this, meaning they probably were uninformed about this until he gives them this uh, bit of truth. And it's about the way that um, uh, the, the, the order of the rapture will occur at, related to uh, those receiving resurrected bodies. So, so this is Paul talking to the Thessalonians and trying to help get them a perspective about what it is that they should expect related to the rapture, okay? Uh, all right, so let's uh, go to part three here, bottom of page two. The dead will rise. This is, the, uh, this is kind of the, the big point, and we don't know. It's difficult, in, in my estimation, it's difficult to know exactly just by looking at a few verses here in Thessalonians. It's difficult to know exactly what they knew and what they didn't know. But I want us to just go back and pretend you just got saved out of some, you know, uh, Greek God, you know, sort of a background, okay? You've, you've been believing in polytheism and you've been in that sort of a, a background. And now you just became a Christian and you're being told by kind of the main Christian guy that uh, has been informing you, this Apostle Paul. He says, when you die, you're going to raise from the dead. That is a very wild idea. That is very different than a lot of what uh, the, the Grecian thought process would have been uh, related to uh, theology. This idea that they're going to raise from the dead. And so uh, this is Paul. He's putting his foot down and he's saying, listen, it's important that you guys understand this. This is a significant part of your future. And I want you to know it because I want you to live like it's true. I want you to live in light of this. I want you to live diligently because of this fact, this reality. So now, top of uh, page three. 
we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so, that's an important detail. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So just kind of connect the dots here. We believe that Jesus rose from the dead. That is a very unusual thing to have happen to your, again, go back to the, the context of, of all this going on, all the different you know, Roman gods and, and Greek gods and Greek mythology and all that stuff. It's a very weird thing for your God to die. And then if your God dies, for him to raise to life. That is not a normal thing in the conversation of what uh, uh, those in, the, in that day would have been thinking about related to theology. He says, we believe our God died and he rose, a dead, rose from the dead. And so we believe some more crazy stuff. We believe that that was a pattern that not only did he die, but because he died and rose, that now buys permission for everybody that uh, links themselves with him, believes in him, follows Jesus, that we will also die and rise again. And that when he comes back, which is another interesting idea related to you know, deities and stuff, they've gone away, but one day he's going to come back. And when he comes back, he's going to bring with him everybody that's died. That is a Profound idea, again, for you and I that are a little bit familiar with these ideas, it doesn't strike us quite the same way that it was striking those that were hearing this for the first time, okay? And Paul just got done saying, I don't want you to be uninformed. I'm about to tell you some crazy stuff because I think that probably there's some gaps in your understanding. I do not want you to remain uninformed, so let me tell you how this works. When Jesus comes back, he's going to bring back with him all of those who have fallen asleep in him, those that have died in Christ, okay? All right, the order of the resurrection, we get some uh, good details here, and I'll throw in one of the passages from 1 Corinthians, kind of like we did the flip-flop when we were studying Corinthians. But here it is, the order of the resurrection, 1 Thessalonians 4, 15. says, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. What does that mean? means that the order of the rapture, the order of those getting resurrected bodies, he says, those who are left, and, and he's in this statement, he's either assuming or at least playing the part of one who is assuming, he'll be there when it happens. He says, he says we who are left, we who are still alive, he says, I want you to understand, we don't get resurrected bodies before all of those that have died in Christ get resurrected bodies. They come first. Then he says this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. He said, the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord. So, so the dead in Christ rise first and then us after. Uh, similarly, 1 Corinthians 15, 52 says, the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. So he's, he's making the, uh, the same statement there, the dead first and then those uh, that are alive. So I, part of the little side point I just want to make here, because I recognize when you study 1 and 2 Corinthians and then you study 1 and 2 Thessalonians, there is so much overlap content related to the rapture and the resurrection. But 
these are like some primary New Testament books related to like what it means to be a Christian. This is, these are epistles dis- defining and describing New Testament theology, what a believer as a, in, in the New Testament should be thinking, believing, reading, receiving, embodying. Think about how much content we've been covering about the resurrection and a focus on it. When our eyes are set on the prize, our eyes are set on our future and what the Lord promises, we live a different life than if we are mostly thinking about our problems and the day-to-day. One of the things that I'm confident, we'll see it here in just a second, one of the things that I'm confident was a major point in Paul's uh, continual presentation um, of these ideas was to get believers thinking about the stuff that really matters and getting their eyes off of the temporal. Okay, He wrote to the Colossians and he said, set your mind on things above and not on earthly things. I mean, that's the same, that is in a phrase what he is leading them into here and what he was leading them into in First, in first Corinthians and Second. It's that same idea. It's to try to get the believer to be thinking about the eternal and the long-term and the reality of what awaits us and to not be thinking about our, our temporal, temporal problems. All right. So the timing of the rapture, there's more on this than you would think. This is a pretty significant um, sub-point. I mean, it's not, a, it's not a major New Testament point, but it's a pretty significant sub-point. Whenever we read this term, the last trumpet, the seventh trumpet, after you know whatever language is being used related to uh, the timing of the rapture being in relationship to the last trumpet, it's important that we understand that this wasn't a, um, uh, I don't know, like a, a tongue-in-cheek way of saying the end. Like it's, Paul wasn't inventing a new phrase to talk about the end times. Paul wasn't saying, you know, at the, at the last trumpet. He wasn't, saying, he wasn't like making it up kind of like, you know, when the sun sets for humanity. He wasn't like making up a new phrase He was actually helping people to understand the reality of the timing of events in the end time drama. Now, I don't know how much Paul understood about there being seven trumpets in the book of Revelation. Obviously, the book of Revelation hadn't been written yet. I don't know how much he understood about that. What we do know is he had great clarity that there were trumpets in the end times. Okay? That's interesting because... There haven't been trumpets in other times. It's not like there's been heavenly trumpets in, you know, 2024 or heavenly trumpets in, you know, the first century church. Paul wasn't walking around going, well, you know, there's like 10 trumpets during our generation. Trumpets wasn't a thing like that. But Paul understood with clarity related to the last days, there would be trumpets. So that part we can be clear on. Did he know there were seven? I don't know if he knew how many What I do know is he had enough clarity. There were end-time trumpets. It was a big deal. They will be discernible. He talks about this trumpet thing like, you know when it happens. Another reference point to how much dialogue and conversation must have occurred previously related to Paul's talking with believers about the facts of the end times and including the concept of end-time trumpets. Okay, So then John comes in in the book of Revelation 
And he gets the full package. He gets the full revelation. He gets to see, oh, there's seven trumpets. And they're in order. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. But what Paul had enough clarity about, for sure, is there are end-time trumpets. They are discernible. They are a big deal. And Christ comes at the last one. So I don't know how many trumpets he knew there were going to be, but he knew there were going to be trumpets, plural, and he knew that the last one is when Jesus was going to come. So I just wanted to kind of paint that picture and then give you a few verses here. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. The trumpet call of God. So this is like related to the coming of Christ. It's related to a trumpet call. It's really important we don't downgrade that language to mean absolutely nothing. That we don't downgrade the trumpet call of God to just mean another way to say God's timing. It's not God's timing. God's timing will include a trumpet. And that trumpet will sound and the whole caboodle. All right. 1 Corinthians 15.52 said it similarly. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised perishable, and we will all be changed. Or, and we will be changed. All right, so here's the point that I want to make before we look at the couple of verses in Revelation, because we get more clarity from Revelation. And that's what the Bible does. The Bible interprets the Bible. The greatest teacher of the Bible is the Holy Spirit, and you get that teaching from other Bible verses. So you put verses with verses, and now you understand more because the Holy Spirit has been speaking a little here, a little here, a little here. And when you put those verses together, you get the full clarity that he has been willing to give mankind, but it does need to be mined a little bit. you got to dig it up, okay? So these two verses that we just looked at, this is Paul talking Thessalonica and to uh, Corinth. And to these two churches, he's describing the second coming in relationship to a trumpet, an end-time trumpet being sound, okay? Then he says this, or, or rather this is now in Revelation. And again, that trumpet, the one that he's talking about, is specific to the second coming. Now let's read about this last trumpet. We find out there are seven. Let's read about this seventh trumpet. When the seventh trumpet is sounded in the book of Revelation, at the end times, when, when all this occurs... Let's look at what happens because it's like, oh my gosh, that's the second coming. That's, that's the return of Christ. All right, so here we are, Revelation 10, 6 through 7. There will be no more delay, but in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet. And for those that aren't super familiar with Revelation, there have been seven angels. Each of them had a trumpet in their hand, and each of them blew it. So this, this seventh angel is blowing a seventh trumpet. It turns out it's the last. The seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet. What happens? Oh, you know, the mystery of God will be accomplished. Just as he has announced to his servants, the prophets. He's talking about the culmination, the coming of Christ. Here it is, 1115. The angel, the seventh angel, sounded his trumpet. So in Revelation 10, it's he's about to, and when he does, is what's going to happen. The fullness of God, the mystery of God will be made known. Here it is, chapter 11, it's actually happening. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become, for the first time ever, has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And from that point on, and never before that, 
He will reign forever and ever. It's the coming of Christ. So just really important that we get that whole, any reference, and there are other references, any reference to the last trumpet, the, the seventh trumpet, the trumpet call of God that ushers in the return of Christ, this is the context we're talking about uh, uh, here. Okay, well, what happens when that trumpet is sounded? An army amasses in the sky. Again, that is just another one of those like ultra bizarro concepts if it's not one that you've thought of before. So maybe go back in time for a minute and pretend that you don't know that when Jesus comes, we all meet him in the air. This is a really crazy way to stage an army for attack, okay? Normally you need like a big field, you know, a big warehouse, something, streets. He gets all his army in the air, in the most, that would just be so terrifying and ominous. Like, if you're just so used to armies being on earth, and really it's difficult to see the scope of an army when it's on earth because of your vantage point. But what about if that army is amassed in the sky, and it, I don't know that it'll go this way, but probably from somebody's perspective, it'll block out the sun. I mean, depending on where somebody's standing, I mean, <laughs> like, there's a bajillion people in the sky. Why are they there? What are they doing up there, and what are they about to do? It is a very ominous, this is a, a, a striking fear move in the hearts of all of mankind in as much as it is a practical point. Well, where in the world do you gather two billion people? Where would you even do that? I mean, from a just a military, you know, stance, what, what place on earth, position, you know, what big field makes sense to gather two billion people? And that may, you know, just making that number up, but I mean, if there are a billion saints, you know, uh, in the earth, you know, throughout history and now, and then there's a billion in the great harvest at the end of the age, that's two billion, plus all the angels in heaven, I don't know, is that enough? I don't, that's a lot. You got a lot of guys and gals and things with wings. I mean, you got a lot of things with wings, okay? And they all need a place to gather. It's a big old field. He's like, ah, I got a field in the sky. And so they meet the Lord in the sky, and that's what he says. He just says it so clearly, caught up together to be with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, really important detail for those that are not, um, haven't stared at this a lot, Jesus is coming back to the earth. He's coming. He's not sticking his head in the sky and saying, okay, gather up here, everybody, and then going back to heaven. That is not what he's doing. Jesus is coming. And a part of his coming is he's going to take a pit stop in the sky on his way down. But he's coming. It's a really important detail because there are many that believe that the rapture is Jesus sticks his head in the sky, everybody's gathered to him, and then they all go away to heaven, and that is not a coming. That is not Jesus coming to the earth. Jesus is coming to the earth to take over, and it will be a hostile takeover of the planet. He's coming. This is such a huge point of differentiation if you've been taught differently. Jesus is coming. And in his coming, he will gather his saints. When he gathers his saints, that's not the end. 
That's only the beginning of the beginning. Then that massive group is still coming to the earth under Jesus' leadership so that he can establish the fullness of his rule and justice on earth. Okay, well, when all this happens, and a transition occurs. This is a, a beautiful moment. Um, it's one that uh, is something that we're supposed to look forward to. It's also one that we're supposed to have a little bit of clarity about. Um, that when this occurs, 1 Thessalonians 4.17... And so we will be with the Lord forever. When he comes, when we meet him in the air, when that moment occurs, our our fate is sealed. It's done. We will be with the Lord forever. From that point on, forever. That is a glorious reality. And it's also the pivot and transition that, your inner man is longing for because you were created spirit even before you were created to be flesh. You will forever be with the Lord from that day forward. And your inner person, who you are, how you were created, longs and yearns for that day. You long, there's something in you that is yearning for that moment when you get to be with the Lord forever. No longer just having these little moments where we feel his presence a little here and a little here, but that we would get to be with him in a new state with an eternal uh, uh, body, an increased level of fellowship of the Holy Spirit. I mean, think about who gets in the way of your relationship with God. Is it God or is it you? It's you. You get in the way. I know because I'm like you. Well, what is it that gets in the way? It's my flesh. It's the longings and the desires that are ungodly, it's my appetites, it's my boredom, it's my inability to focus, but it's all my weakness, it's all my human weakness. What about when your human weakness is resurrected and you don't have weakness anymore? You can focus. You can experience the Lord in fullness. You don't have any of those issues. You don't, you don't have the longings that you had before, the, the desires for things that are unhealthy. and all, all that goes away. You will be in a state of perfect fellowship by the indwelling Holy Spirit who never goes away. Holy Spirit doesn't leave you when you get a resurrected body. That's actually when the fun really gets started because now you don't have you in the way anymore. And now forever, you'll get to be with the Lord in that elevated state. It's going to be incredible. 1 Thessalonians 5.10, he died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. This is just describing that, that whole again, live with him, live with him. The hope of eternity is that we live with him. However, there are important details that we must understand, and they are, they are details the enemy really does not want uh, uh, New Testament believers thinking about. It does not want the church giving any attention to. This is First uh, Thessalonians 5, and then I'm also going to read you Matthew 24, because it articulates the same concept. When are we going to be with him forever? When we meet him in the sky. That's when the thing is sealed. But look at this. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. Your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Why is Paul praying for Christians to be kept blameless until the coming of Jesus? Because it matters. That's why. It matters. 
To make it even clearer, let's read the words of Jesus, Matthew 24. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. The end is we meet him in the air. That's the moment. That's when it's sealed. Until then, we must continue to reach to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, soul, mind, and strength. We don't get a pass. It is, uh, it is such a brilliant strategy of the enemy. I mean, it's so crafty and cruel and mean that the enemy would convince Christians, because you prayed a prayer, you, you don't need to worry about your salvation. That is crazy. That is, that is not how the New Testament reads at all. The New Testament reads, Paul writing to a church that Paul himself discipled and cares about and stays in contact with, he says, you know what I pray for you? I pray you'd be kept blameless until the day of Christ. I'm praying for you. I am contending that you would continue to walk worthy. Jesus' words to us are, there's going to be such an increase of wickedness, but the ones who stand firm to me to the end until my coming, those ones will be saved. It's to give us a vision for our life that we would not grow weary in doing good but that we would continue to serve the Lord and seek him all our days. And then Paul says this. He says it in both chapter 4 and chapter 5. He says the same concept elsewhere in other ways. He says this. He just gets done talking to him about all this rapture stuff and, and the coming of the Lord and getting a resurrection. And, and he says this. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. It is supposed to be a pretty normal part. And I'll just say right now, it's not. It's totally not normal. And maybe that's part of the reason that we're anemic. But it's supposed to be a very normal part of New Testament Christianity that we encourage one another in light of eternity. You had a bad day. And that the encouragement that we get from a friend isn't just, you know, Lord heal their boo-boo. But like, you're going to live forever forever. These are light and momentary afflictions and getting perspective about our boo-boos because if we put our hope and our focus on the temporal, we will forever miss the fact that we are eternal beings. You are going to live forever. You're alive in this body for one minute, one short minute called a hundred years or 20, whatever you get. It's a minute. And Paul says, it's important that you encourage one another with these words, that you you think this way and it become part of the way that you interact with one another, that we would be encouraged by the fact of eternity and that we're going to live forever. And then he says it again in, in a chapter later. He says, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as you are in fact doing. He didn't change gears. And a minute ago he said, encourage one another with these words and this content, second coming, uh, the revelation of the rapture, the revelation of the resurrection. And then in... Chapter 5, when he's still been talking all about those things, him say, encourage one another, and now he's talking about, you know, encourage one another to, like, have New Year's resolutions. That's not, he's talking about the same thing. It's the same exact encouragement. He's, he's saying, listen, we're in a line of thinking here. We're in a train of thought. Encourage one another with these things because this will actually have infinite uh, impact. He says it in Titus. He calls the second coming of Christ our blessed hope. I mean, that is encouraging. That is encouraging one another with these things. He says it elsewhere as well. All right, let's go to part four, page four. Now, this is interesting. It's Paul changing gears a little bit. 
and he starts warning about ignoring the subject of the end times. Warnings about ignoring the study of eschatology. Chapter 5 follows chapter 4. I know we can count at least that high. Chapter 5 follows chapter 4. Chapter 4, Paul is giving instructions about the second coming, about the timing of it and those details. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed. He gives them all that. So now in chapter 5, it's all still very much in that same line of thought. And he says this in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 through 3. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So this is important. This theme, this, this thief in the night motif shows up multiple times through the apostles and also through Jesus. Jesus coined the idea. The apostles, like good disciples, took the idea and continued to talk about it in Jesus' absence in their letters uh, to, uh, to the New Testament believers. Here's the thinking. Here's the idea. The, uh, the original passage, which I probably should have given you, and I'm sorry, we covered it in a previous session, but Jesus is the one that coins the idea in the Gospels, and he says it this way. He says, if a thief were to break into a house and the owner of the house had known at what time the thief was coming, he would not have permitted his house to be broken into because that's how it works. It's like you stay up with your gun and you fire a warning shot. I mean, you see the guy on the front porch like, hey, bud, this one's for free. <laughs> Next one, you're not going to like where it goes, Okay. He says, he would, you wouldn't let somebody break into your house if you knew when they were coming. He said, the issue is the people of God, if they're not careful, and they can fix this by being careful. The people of God, if they're not careful, the end times will come like a thief in the night. He said, but that's not what it's supposed to happen for you. You're not supposed to be in that category. That will be the category for many but it shouldn't be the category for you, but I'm writing you because it still can be the category for you. You being saved doesn't categorically protect you from this. You being saved means you have access to information you must apply. If you apply the information, you'll be good to go. If you don't apply the information, the thief will catch you same as the lost dude. The situation will come upon you in the exact same manner, it comes upon the uninformed, the lost. He said, but it's not supposed to be that way. I'm giving you information so that you would pay attention so that this situation, this thief motif would not impact you the way that it will impact the lost. Moving on, top of page five. To those who are paying attention, 1 Thessalonians 5.4. <clears throat> but you, brothers and sisters are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. See, there it is, that surprise. Because what's going to happen is, it's going to come as a surprise to those that aren't paying attention. Now, if just in the, the whole thief you know, concept or whatever, let's say that the, the whoever, whatever house it was, they are armed to the teeth and they are ready to go all the time during the day. 
and they are always, you know, uh, armed and, and ready for not just thieves, but for, you know, those that would, you know, come against them uh, armed or whatever. But in this one area, they sleep at night and they're not ready and they're not prepared. They can still have this bad thing happen to them, even though they're ready in all the other ways. Paul is trying to convince the New Testament believers to continue to care about the subject of the second coming and to have clarity and understanding about it so that we're not like those that are caught off guard. He follows it up this way. Now remember, when Paul's talking here, his conversation is, don't be like those that are caught off guard by the second coming. That's the conversation that he's having. So when he says this whole thief motif thing, it's about being caught off guard by the timing of the second coming. That's the subject matter. He doesn't change subjects here and now suddenly start talking primarily about righteousness. His subject matter is preparation for the Lord's coming. His subject matter is, is a awakenness, a readiness. So as we read these verses, keep that in mind. 1 Thessalonians 5, 5 through 8. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep. See, his focus is on alertness, being awake, being prepared, paying attention. That's his focus here. But let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. This is Paul reaching to this group of people that he loves, these Thessalonians that he spent time with, that he's trained in eschatology. He's taught them things about the end times. And he's making the comparison, there's going to be two kinds of people. There's going to be the kind of people that are asleep in the end times, not awake, not sober, not paying attention. And then there's going to be the kind of people that are awake and are alerted and that know what's going on. And he says, you don't need to be like those that are asleep. The focus of this passage is not primarily on don't sin. Don't sin is a good New Testament teaching all the time. But that is not primarily what's being described here. He's saying, you're children of the light. You're children of those who are paying attention. You're children that have been giving instruction. Don't live like those that are living in darkness who have not received that instruction about the second coming. They've not received that information. Don't live like them. You have a choice. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let's be awake and sober. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to take a minute here. And then we'll wrap up in just a minute. So worship leader, you can come on up. This is important. We're familiar, I think, for those that have been kind of uh, paying attention to the, the end time conversation. You've probably heard it said in relationship to those that believe that we're going to be here or, or that we're going to be taken up before any of the bad stuff happens. You probably heard them quote part of this verse. The church was not appointed to suffer wrath. Okay? That's probably a verse that you've heard uh, quoted as, as a defense. Uh, and the defense goes, God doesn't want the church to suffer the judgments at the end of the age. We've not been appointed to suffer wrath. But the context matters greatly. Paul is talking about not suffering wrath because you were prepared. He's saying the whole context of 1 Thessalonians 5 is... Be ready, be awake, be sober, be alerted because we weren't appointed to suffer wrath, you dum-dums. 
You weren't, you're not supposed to experience the bad stuff in, in the way that many will because you're supposed to be paying attention. You're supposed to be awake and sober. And if you do that, you'll be fine. We weren't appointed to suffer wrath. The, that, when that statement is taken out of context, you can make it mean whatever you want. If you take that statement out of context, you can make it mean God would never let bad things happen on the planet while Christians are here. But that's not what the verse is about at all. This Christians not appointed or the church not appointed to suffer wrath is in the context of we've been given instruction. Let's pay attention. Let's follow the rules. Let's be sober and awake so that we can then be prepared for the day. So just a, just a quick recap. As New Testament believers, we have access to understanding the hour of the Lord's coming. And we are responsible for that, for that access and responsible for that understanding. If we'll take it and we'll study the end times and we'll continue to put our hope in Jesus' coming and we'll, we'll be thinking about the, the resurrection as our future, we will be very much in the game, very sober related to his coming, paying attention to the details. He said, that's what I want for you. That's the objective. If you don't do that, there's going to be all sorts of negative things. Like you'll be caught like a thief coming to you in the night. There will be wrath that you'll suffer that you weren't appointed for because you weren't paying attention. There's things you could have avoided. And then Paul ends it. Thankfully, we get to end on a happy note. We get to end on hope. Paul ends it this way. He just got done giving him some heavy stuff. And I just imagine him shaking his head when he prays it. That's just how I would like... Oh, oh, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, your soul, your body, oh God, let it be kept blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? The one who calls you, he's faithful and he'll do it. He'll help you. It's a positive note for us to lean into Jesus and his ability to help us. But his ability to help us is never his ability to do it for us. His ability to help us, his willingness to come alongside us, help us, strengthen us, help us to get it, help us to walk in righteousness, help us, help us, is never an excuse for us to go, he'll do it for me, I can do whatever I want. No, that's not how that works. This concludes this teaching from the prayer room. For more resources, please visit our website at tprdfw.com. Thank you.